I'm concerned that our church culture is so afraid to talk about the Bible. And what I mean by that is, like, I'm really concerned that some of the culture that has been nurtured in our church environments, in our congregation, has brought us to a place where we're afraid to tackle some of the more controversial or difficult topics of Scripture to the point to where we don't even want to talk about it. And then we use words and phrases to sort of giggle about it and sort of brush it under the rug and say, well, we're just not going to, we're not going to talk about that. And one of those topics is the devil. (laughs) Did you gasp? Are you okay? Okay. One of those topics is the devil. And... We don't. We don't. We don't talk about it, and it and it's and it's something that really concerns me because I won't go into all of the details, but you know, people that are real close to us experience things in the last couple of weeks that you cannot explain apart from having a divine enemy. You, you, it just doesn't. Think, these things don't happen without something existing to grab someone and pull them radically in the opposite direction without any warning, any forethought, nothing. They just flip and they're gone. And you've done nothing to promote that. There's got to be something that exists, someone that is counter what God is trying to develop inside of us. There's, there's a sandpaper that exists. We in the church have done a very fine job of saying, well, I don't want to glorify the devil as an excuse to not talk about the demonic realm, to talk about the powers of the air, to talk about what we're up against. We say our wrestle's not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and might. But we just sort of say that in passing, and we never really spend the time to help people understand what that really is. And it's not that we need to know that so that we can specifically target or defeat it, but Paul said that we are not unaware or ignorant of his devices, which means if we know his devices and the way he works, that means that we have to know him because that's the way he does things. That's his characteristics. That's his attributes. So when you go to the Hebrew and you look up the name Yahweh, for example, Yodhe is the Hebrew tetragram for, God, for, for father's name. So it's Yahweh, Yodhe Vav And when it says the name of God, so it'll say the name, or there is no salvation found in any other name. There's no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. People get into a tangent and they say, well, you have to say Jesus. You have to say Yeshua. You have to say Yahashua. You have to say Yahweh. You don't say Jehovah. And they get into all of these semantics about the way you pronounce the way the name shows up. But that's not what name means in Hebrew. Samantha. No. Semantics. (laughs) Semantics. <laughs> no, baby. Semant- sem- semantics. I almost did that time. 
the Hebrew the Hebrew word for name is Sha'am. And when it says the name, it says the Sha'am of God. The Sha'am in Hebrew literally means the attributes of. So when I went to Chick-fil-A last night, I met a guy named John, and he was talking to me. He was in his 50s. If somebody would have walked up to us and said, John, we both would have looked. But if they would have said, John, the employee at Chipotle, or at Chick-fil-A, or they would have said, hey, John Davison, the one sitting there eating your chicken, there's defining things happen based off of the characteristics of the individual. That's what the Hebrew and the Greek is teaching us. So your attributes in Scripture have to do with what your name is. They go together. So when it comes to the enemy, when it says we're not unaware of his devices, what Paul is teaching us is that we're not unaware of who he is. So we can get into the semantics as to all the different ways that he tries to do things. But the fact of the matter is the way that he does things is who he is. He's the author of confusion. Therefore, he is confused. He's the author of chaos. Therefore, he's chaotic. But he does have plans. He does have something he's shooting for. And he, there, is, there is a purpose to the reality of what he's trying to accomplish against or for your personal life, whether you're saved or you're not. You, you, whether you're saved or you're not, you still have to deal with this, like it or not. So when we're in Acts chapter 19, and I'm going to dig into this as we go deeper. When we were in Acts chapter 19, when we were reading, there was a specific thing that was spoken. And it says this in Acts 19. Let's start in verse 23. It says, about that time, some trouble arose about the way. For a silversmith named Demetrius, who made silver shrines for Artemis, brought much business to the craftsmen. He gathered them together with the, wood, with the workmen of similar trades and said, Men, you know that by this trade we have our wealth. And you see in here, not only at Ephesus, but also throughout all Asia, that this Paul has persuaded and turned away many people, saying that these things made by hands are not God's. But now, not only is our trade in danger of coming into disrepute, but also the temple of the great goddess Artemis, whom all Asia in the world worships. They may be discredited and her majesty destroyed. When they heard this, they were full of anger and cried out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. The city was filled with confusion, and in unison they all seized Gaius and Aristarchus, Paul's traveling companions from Macedonia, and rushed into the, into the theater. When Paul intended to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. Even some of the rulers of Asia, were not, who were his friends, sent to him, begging him not to venture into the theater. Verse 32. The assembly was confused. Therefore, some cried out one thing and some another. And most of them did not even know why they had come together. The Jews pushed Alexander to the front as the crowd prompted him. Alexander motioned with his hand wishing to make his defense to the mob. But when they learned that he was a Jew for about two hours, they all with one voice cried out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. The city clerk quieted the crowd and said, Men of Ephesus, what man is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians 
is the guardian of the temple of the great Artemis and of the image which fell from heaven. And of the image which fell from heaven. I'm going to stop there and we'll pick up in many, 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 many other verses here. God has placed in the heart of every single individual a desire to worship something. Worship is the natural disposition of the heart of man. Regardless as to whether or not man is worshiping God, worshiping idols, worshiping a temple, worshiping the work of their own hands, it may not be in the form of a golden image, but it could be in the form of building their car. It could be in the form of the fact that they're extravagant at building houses and they worship the fact that they have this amazing talent. Or artists, for example, certain artists, you know, they just get really carried away with the work of their hands and get a real big head. And, and they worship it. They worship the talent that they've been given. There's a heart and a disposition for worship in the heart of every single individual. God placed that there to be filled with worshiping him. This is where things start to get a little bit tricky. The worship that's taking place in Ephesus has to do with an image which fell from heaven. The image which fell from heaven they set up a temple to. And then because they set up the temple, other people started making shrines and images of Artemis of the Ephesians. Now, Artemis or Diana, depending if it's the Greek or the Roman, Artemis itself, Artemis itself was a multi-breasted god, multi-breasted deity. This image which fell from heaven is what they built the temple around and they worshiped the image which fell from heaven. So even in their fallen state, even in their not knowing who they're worshiping, even though they... They're not worshiping the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Even though they're not worshiping the Creator, they still have an interest in worshiping something that came from heaven. So it was in their heart to worship something. But this image fell from heaven. So we have to ask the question, if they're confused, if they're worshiping idols, if they're hostile towards the gospel, if they're hostile towards Jesus, if they're hostile towards anything that has to do with directing themselves towards God, the true God, Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the question has to be answered as to, then if they're not worshiping him, who are they worshiping? Why are they worshiping him? And how did we get to this point? Because it's, this is what Paul runs up against. These are, the, these are the people that Paul eventually tells them that, that they have an inheritance in the saints after they get born again. So to understand the Ephesians and to understand the church of Ephesus, you have to understand what they came out of, what they were worshiping, and what was going on in their life and in their custom and in their cultures so that you understand what Paul was walking into and what Paul was purging them from when he brought the gospel and he brought the Holy Spirit. Jesus made a statement in Luke chapter 10, verse 17 through 20. Luke chapter 10, verse 17 through 20. So this is in context 
to making disciples. He sends out the disciples to make disciples. He sends out the disciples to go heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the leper, cast out demons. Verse 17, the 70 turned and returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us through your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan as lightning fall from heaven. Look, I have given you authority to trample on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall by any means hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice that the spirits are subject to you, but rather rejoice that your names are written in heaven. What's he saying? He's specifically pinpointing, I saw Satan fall from heaven like lightning. The image that they're worshiping is an image which fell from heaven. So Satan fell from heaven. This image fell from heaven. So we know that there's some type of a satanic worship that's taking place here. So when did he fall? How did he fall? And what took place and why? And again, I'm going to jump through all kinds of scriptures here. But Revelation chapter 12. Revelation chapter 12. Verse 3. There's a vision, verse 3, Then another sign appeared in heaven. There was a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven diadems on his heads. His tail drew a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. The dragon stood before the woman who was ready to give birth to devour her child as soon as he was born. She gave birth to the male child who was to rule all nations with an iron scepter. And her child was caught up to God and to his throne. The woman fled into the wilderness where she saw a place prepared by God that they may nourish her there for 1,260 days. There, then war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon and the dragon and his angels fought. But they did not prevail, nor was there a place for them in heaven any longer. The dragon was cast out, that ancient serpent called the devil and Satan, who deceived the whole world. He was cast down to earth, and his angels were cast down with him. So it's talking about stars being cast down from heaven. The devil gets cast out of heaven with angelics, with the third of the angels. The same language is used in the beginning of the book of Revelation when Jesus is talking to John and he talks about the symbolism of Scripture. This concept of the, of, of the vision of a star. When you see the word star in these types of visions, it's always symbolic of an angelic being. Every time. So watch what happens in Revelation chapter 1, in verse 17. This is John experiencing the presence of Jesus. He says, When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though I were dead. Then he laid his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I was dead, and look, I am alive forevermore. That's a really fun scripture for the Jehovah Witnesses when you go to witness to them, by the way. Anyway, amen. And I have the keys of Hades and death. 
Write these things which you have seen and the things which are and the things which will take place after this. The mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the candlestick, the lampstand, the menorah you saw are the seven churches. So he's, so Jesus is defining the language being used for a star. He's talking about angels. So we know that when Satan fell, he took a third of the angels with him. Those angels came down. There's a lot of visions and dreams and things that take place in Scripture. And depending on how familiar you are with the Hebrew, in Genesis chapter 1, when it says, let us make God in our image, although I believe in the triunity of the God, the complex unity, that verse right there, let us make God in our image, actually has nothing to do with the... What? Yeah, let us make man, excuse me, yes, let us make man in our image. When that language is used in the Hebrew, it's talking about the angelic counsel of God. It's not talking about God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. That's not a Trinitarian verse in the Hebrew. There's tons of verses to use to prove the Trinity is true. But that's not one of them in the Hebrew. It's actually talking about the angelic beings that were there with God during the creation of man. That's what that's specifically talking about. Um, If you've ever researched anything on the divine counsel of God in the Psalms, God has an angelic counsel. He has different things going on in the heavenly realms. And the angels were a part of that counsel. They still are in many ways, but Satan himself initially or Hasatan, or however you want to pronounce it, the Satans, because in the Dead Sea Scrolls, it doesn't refer to Satans as singular. It actually talks about the Satans, meaning the fallen angels in general. Although there is a Satan, there is a a supreme being who gets most of the credit for the rebellion of man. He was the first. He was the one who led the rebellion. There's multiple different angelic beings that went with him. And we know that based off of what we just read in other verses in Scripture. So I, I want to talk to you a little bit more about this fall, when this fall took place, why this fall took place, and get, give you an understanding of why the demonic realm hates you. Why does Satan hate you? Why, is he bother, why does he even bother with you? Like, he's got the earth. He offered all the kingdoms of this world to Jesus. And Jesus even refers to him as the prince of this world. When we get into into the book of Ephesians, we'll talk about principalities in the Greek. We're going to get into what principalities are. Governing bodies that are angelic bodies over territorial regions that God established and set up during the Tower of Babel when he dispersed the nations. Paul later refers to it as you set the fixed boundaries of man's inhabitation. And it talks about how God set up, even if you go back to Genesis and you talk about the Garden of Eden, one of the first references we have in the Old Testament in the book of Bereshit, Genesis, in the beginning, or in in the book of beginnings, is as soon as Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden, God immediately set up angels 
to guard that territory. So now that territory was being guarded by an angelic being that it previously wasn't guarded by before, before it was guarded by Adam and Eve. It was their responsibility to be fruitful, multiply, and it was their responsibility to subdue that region and have dominion. But they submitted to the serpent. So let's go to Ezekiel chapter 28. And we're going to go to Ezekiel 28. We're going to go to Isaiah 14. We're going to read both of those chapters. But Ezekiel 28 to begin with, because we have to really see this. If we don't become serious, if we don't become serious, I believe if we don't become serious about understanding the adversary that's against us and why he's against us. Why he's against us positions us to succeed against him every time. Once we come to Christ, obviously, we have the blood of Christ. That's what qualifies us to the victory. But knowing what he's after positions us to be successful so that we don't give it to him. So Ezekiel 28, watch this. What verse? The whole thing. Lots of scripture. Number one. Number one. The word of the Lord came again to me, saying, Son of man, say to the leader of Tyre, thus says the Lord God. So this is like a double, triple entendre. We're talking about a multi-layered revelation. And this word that Ezekiel is giving to the king of Tyre is a rebuke against him. But he likens it to a past event that took place. So Tyre's rebellion is being likened to a rebellion that once happened long ago. And you'll see where it starts to overlap and we'll break it down. The word of the Lord came again to me saying, Son of man, say to the leader of Tyre, thus says the Lord God. Because your heart is lifted up and you have said, I am a God. I sit in the seat of gods in the midst of the sea. Yet you are a man and not God, though you set your heart as the heart of God. You are wiser than Daniel. There is no secret that is a match for you. With your wisdom and with your understanding, you have obtained riches for yourself and have obtained gold and silver into your treasuries. By your own wisdom, by your trade, you have increased your riches and your heart is lifted up because you are rich. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, because you have set your heart as a heart, because you have set your heart as the heart of God, therefore, I will bring strangers upon you, the most cruel of the nations, and they shall draw their swords against you, the beauty of your wisdom and defile your brightness. They shall bring you down to the pit and you shall die the death of those who are slain in the midst of the seas. You will yet say before him who slays you, I am a God although you are a man and not God. In the hands of those who wound you, you shall die the death of the uncircumcised by the hand of strangers. For I have spoken, says the Lord God. Moreover, this is where it gets interesting. The word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, take up a lament over the king of Tyre and say to him, Thus says the Lord God. You had the seal of perfection. Full of wisdom and perfect in beauty, you were in Eden, the garden of God. 
Now, the king of Tyre was never in the Garden of Eden. No. So, it starts to switch. And he's trying, and he's trying to make a point by pointing to something that happened previously in history. So he says, You had the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering. The sardis, topaz, the diamond, the barrel, the onyx, and the jasper, the sapphire, the emerald, the carbuncle, and gold. The workmanship of your settings and sockets was in you. On the day that you were created... They were prepared. Now, a lot of people stop here, and they try to point this to Adam. They try to point this and say, well, it's clearly Adam, because the breastplate, the stones that are his covering are very similar to the stones of the high priest in the temple. And they try to make this sort of comparison to kind of brush off the rest of the weird text that we're about to read. Mm. But if we're honest with Scripture, and we read the hard parts, and we're really real, we're going to read this. This is where it gets crazy. You were the anointed cherub that covers, and I set you there. You were the anointed cherub that covers, and I set you there. You were upon the holy mountain of God, and you walked up and down in the midst of the stones of fire. Scripture tells us that God's, God's throne is like a throne of, of sapphire. It's like a flame of fire. This is none other than the anointed cherub. Before he fell, he was in the presence of God. God placed him in Eden, put him there, and everything was supposed to be cool. Everybody had a responsibility. Everybody had a governing territory and an area that they were supposed to take responsibility for. The concept of the mountain of God is very important because it doesn't matter what Middle Eastern religion or even ancient religion that you go to. Even if you go to like China today or you go to some of the Buddhist areas, they always build everything up on the high mountains because it was always taught that the gods lived in the highest places on earth. So the concept here is God is saying you were in the highest place. You had access to the fullest, the highest place of God. You were before my throne. I gave you everything with wisdom and beauty and power. You had everything that you needed for success. You were in the anointed cherub. And I trusted you with my creation man when I put you in the garden. Verse 14. You were the anointed cherub that covers and I set you there. You were upon the holy mountain of God. You walked up and down in the midst of the stones of fire. You were perfect in your ways from the day that you were created until iniquity was found in you. In Spanish, it's until the day you fall down. Until the day you fall down. Wow. There's, there's a few, there's, there's four different types of sin in the Bible. The worst sin in scripture is iniquity. Iniquity is not just a transgression. It's not just a trespass. It's not just a sin. Iniquity is willful rebellion in God's face, not expecting him to do anything in return. That's what iniquity is. Iniquity is a position of your heart 
where you know that a sin is a sin, and you do it anyway, expecting no consequences, and in God's face deliberately. That's what iniquity is. So we know that when Satan did what he did, it was a deliberate rebellion against God, knowing that he wasn't supposed to do it, what he did with Adam and Eve. Verse 16. By the multitude of your merchandise, you were filled with violence in your midst, and you sinned. Therefore I have cast you as a profane thing out of the mountain of God, and I have destroyed you, O covering cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. He was cast out. Your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. You have corrupted your wisdom by reason of your brightness. I cast you to the ground. I lay you before kings that they may see you. You have defiled your sanctuaries by the multitude of your iniquities, by the iniquity of your trade. Therefore, I have brought fire out from your midst. It has devoured you. And I have turned you to ashes upon the earth in the sight of all those who see you. And all those who know you among the people are astonished at you. You are a terror and you shall cease to be forever. Isaiah Isaiah 14, verse 3. In the day the Lord gives you rest from your sorrows and from your fear and from the hard bondage in which you were made to serve, you shall take up this proverb against the king of Babylon. Notice every single time there is a kingdom that ends up greatly subduing the earth in a large conquest over a period of time. Tyre, Babylon, Syria, all of these areas, the Assyrians, the Philistines, so on and so forth, uh, um, so on and so forth. There's always a king who sets himself up in a specific way, and it's like he's demonically possessed, like a, like a forerunner of, of the Antichrist, if you will. And he keeps getting likened unto this cherub. So it says this, Verse 4, you shall take up this proverb against the king of Babylon and say, How has the oppressor ceased? The golden city ceased. The Lord has broken the staff of the wicked and the scepter of the rulers. He who struck the people in wrath with unceasing strokes, he who ruled the nations in anger is persecuted and no one hinders. The whole earth is at rest and is quiet. They break forth into singing. Indeed, the fir trees rejoice at you. And the cedars of Lebanon say, Since you are laid down, no tree cutter has come up against us. Hell from beneath is moved for you to meet you at your coming. It stirs up the dead for you. Even all the chiefs, one of the earth, it has raised up from the thrones. All the kings of the nations, they all shall speak and say to you, Have you also become as weak as I have? 
Have you also become like us? Your pomp has brought you down to hell, and the noise of your harps. Maggots are spread under you, and the worm covers you. Okay, Isaiah 14, verse 12. How, how are you fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How you are cut down to the ground, you who weaken the nations. For you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. There's that term again. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit also among the mountain of the congregation in the recesses of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds and I will be like the most high. Yet you shall be brought down to hell to the sides of the pit. Those who see you shall stare at you and ponder over you. Is this the man who made the earth to tremble? And shook kingdoms, who made the world as a wilderness and destroyed its cities, who did not open the house of his prisoners. All the kings of the nations, even all of them, lie in glory, each one in his own tomb. But you are cast out of your grave like an abominable branch, and clothed with those who are slain, thrust through with a sword. Who go down to the stones of the pit, as a corpse trodden underfoot. Long story short... Dude wants to be known. Now, I want to submit to you, I want to submit to you my understanding. I want you to research on your own. I want you to read this for yourself. I want you to look into the information that I'm giving you and come to your own conclusions. Here's what I see. God is worshipped. God created man for worship. God created man so that man would be in relationship with him and worship him and be intimate with him and get focused on him and know him. If the purpose in the heart of our adversary is to be like God, then his continual conquest towards you is to get you to acknowledge him the way you're supposed to acknowledge God. In other words, if they're worshiping in Ephesus an image which fell down from heaven and they're cheering and shouting, great is Artemis of the Ephesians, and they're willing to like trample over people and they're willing to do whatever it takes to exalt the name of their God, then what the enemy wants to do in your specific life, born again or not, is to get you to shift your focus away from the Father, away from Jesus, away from the leading of the Holy Spirit, and into his mindset and into his thoughts because you're being conformed to the image of Christ and your body is to be a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. Your reasonable sacrifice to God is your life lived like Christ. So if that's your calling as a believer, as a human, as what you were destined and created for from the foundation of the world, your sacrifice is to manifest the attributes of the Father everywhere you go. If the enemy is responsible for trying to get you to do anything, he's trying to get you to manifest his attributes. He wants you to look like him 
because he wants you to represent him because in representing him, you're worshiping him. We, we copy those things that we honor. We follow those things that we esteem. So in the demonic realm, this whole concept, whether it's Artemis of the Ephesians, whether it's Dagon of the Philistines, whether it, it's, it's, it's Moloch of the Samaritans, whoever it is, every single time there's a territorial spirit that sets something up and gets the people to follow that image, to follow that style, that culture, the way that thing is. So when David gets cast out, when David gets cast out from Israel and he gets ran out from, 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 from Israel by uh, Absalom, when, when, he, when he leaves and he's crying out in the Psalms, he says, why, God, have you driven me away from you? Why does he say that? Isn't God omnipresent? The reason why David cries out, God, why have you driven me away from you? is because the deity that you worshipped is associated with the territory that you lived in. That's why that one guy wanted the dirt, right? That's why the one, yeah, that's why the one guy wanted to take the dirt with him, holy ground. That's why Israel's called holy ground. Yeah, name in Assyrian. The whole concept here is that this territory belongs to this individual. God set up territories for these angelic beings to be in. Their initial original intent was to govern that according to the way that God intended it to be governed. But when they rebelled, it ended up being governed by the way of rebellion and the way that they were following. So now you have this cosmic sort of tug of war taking place where now you even have nations fighting against nations because you have all of these fallen angelic beings all trying to be like God. They all want to be worshipped. So much so to the point to where, and we'll talk about this at some other point in time because it's a bigger, deeper topic, but we talked about the Nephilim. We talked about Genesis 6. We talked about the angelic beings in Genesis chapter 6 coming down and cohabitating with women and making producing offspring known as the giants, the Nephilim. People think this is far-fetched, but it's not far-fetched. The reason why it's not far-fetched is because it's a demonic counterfeit, because the Spirit of God is what impregnated Mary. And guess what? It was a spirit impregnating a woman and having a man. That's not far-fetched from angelic beings. And by the way, in the Hebrew, the word angel and spirit interchange. So it's not far-fetched for angelic beings to come down, cohabitate with women, and have offspring called the Nephilim, called the giants, which we know and we have all kinds of archaeological evidence for giant beings. We have all kinds of ancient stories from the Middle East, from all kinds of different areas. Um, it, it's just nuts. Even in Egypt... The reason why Pharaoh considered himself a god was because he was an offspring from the lineage of the Nephilim and the angelic beings were the ones that taught man 
how to govern the earth and how to make weapons and do all the things that they were doing. So it's not far-fetched for us to understand that the whole concept of the enemy, his whole position towards us is he wants to be like God and we can be. The whole concept of Satan wanting to be like God. He wants to be like God. What does that mean? God is the one who gets to judge. Satan doesn't get that. He has legal ways to go and come before God and accuse, but he doesn't get the final say. What's interesting is, is here's what Paul says in Corinthians. Do you not know, church, that we will judge angels? How much more should we not be able to, to, to judge the trivial things amongst one another? Do you not know that we will judge angels? So God judges angels. He just said that. I cast you down. But then Paul says we'll judge angels. So what is Satan's real big attitude problem with us? He can't be like us. We're unique. Everybody in this room is uniquely created by God in a way that the angelic realm can't be. It says so much so in the book of Hebrews that even angels long to look into these things and understand what we understand. And it says in Hebrews 1 that are not all angels ministering spirits sent to those who inherit salvation. So angels are there to minister to us. Now, however far you want to go with that, I've had my own experiences. I'm not sharing those here. But I've had some pretty awesome experiences with some angelic situations that were really cool. And I'm understanding those things more and more every day. But we have an enemy who's real. And he hates you. He hates what you stand for. He hates what you believe. He hates who you are. And he hates that he can't be like you. So the only thing he can do is get you to follow him. That's about as far as he can take the whole thing. He can get you in the flesh. He can get you irritated. He can get you off on a tangent. He can get you mad at God. He can get you to believe He doesn't even exist. And may I submit to you as humbly as I possibly can, but we in the church do not take this serious enough. Mike Bickle the founder of the House of Prayer, was asked once by a young pastor. The young pastor was coming up, just got out of seminary, something like this, went to IHOP, was talking to Mike Bickle, and just said, you know, I just want to know one thing. How come you are the way you are? How come you are the way you are? And Mike Bickle told him this one thing. He said, son, 
Every day when I wake up, I know I wake up to a war and I live my life that way. He said, every day I wake up knowing I am in a spiritual war. I am in a battle for my soul. Every day. That's what separates us. That's the difference. I didn't just say the prayer. I'm not just sitting in the pew. I'm not just paying the tithe. I'm not just going to the conferences. I'm not just wearing the t-shirt. I'm not just reading my Bible every now and then. And I'm not just singing the songs. Not that I'm putting any of those things down. Those are all fantastic expressions of what we believe and what we do and how we honor the Father. But the way we live our lives, who we are, what we are, and what we do determines the success that we have with the blood of Christ. Jesus already paid for the victory. But we can't just say Jesus paid for the victory, put our heads to the pillow, close our eyes, and call it a day. Every single day is an opportunity for you to grow in grace, to grow in mercy, and to recognize who you are, what you have, what you've become, and what you're becoming, and what's manifesting and the authority that you have, and the inheritance that you have, and the gifts that you have, and the calling that you have, and to develop those things, not so that you can become a superstar in the faith, but you develop those things so that you can represent the Father well. You can represent Jesus well. So that no matter what the enemy throws your way, your first thought is, Is that Jesus? Is that manifesting Christ? Is that the fruit of the Spirit? And I'm not saying that there isn't a possibility that you might stumble. God knows I have. But that's not my heart's position. My heart's position is not to stumble. If it happens, then we need to repent. We need to get our lives right. We need to readjust, refocus, reshift, and move along. But my heart's position is to live right before him. And in that, I'm a son waiting to reveal my father. I'm not a sinner waking up sin conscience, just bumbling along waiting to sin throughout the day because I'm just a sinner. I'm a son now. This is what Paul walked into in Ephesus. Paul walked into a culture. He walked into an atmosphere. He walked into an environment of people whose identities were wrapped up in the worship of an image which fell down from heaven. If only we could be as stubborn as they are for Christ (laughs) instead of for idolatry. And may I submit to you that if we if we don't start looking around and recognizing this, we're in trouble. And here's what I mean. For months I've asked the Lord, what is the world? If I'm not supposed to be of the world, but in the world, what is the world? 
If I'm not supposed to look like the world, what is the world? What is the world? Because if I'm not supposed to look like it, then there should be some kind of a defining thing going on here. I should be able to look at something and go, that's not me. That's not who I am. That's not what I do. That's not who we are. That's not a part of our thing. But everywhere I go, you know what I don't see? I don't see that definition. Here's why. And I'll I'll say this as clearly as I possibly can because we're watching the same movies as everybody else. We're listening to the same music as everybody else. We're investing our time in the same sports as everybody else. We're going to the same secular colleges as everybody else and learning the same secular jobs and running after the same secular dreams. And everything's been blurred in our society to where we don't know who is crying out, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Because we don't even know where the temple stands anymore because it's so in our face. At least there you knew that's where the temple was. Here, in today's society, we're the Babylon of our generation. Everything's thrown together in the pot. It's all mixed in and it's all cool. Hey, man, that's good for you. Listen, man, that's your freedom in Christ. That's this, that's this. You know, oh, well, hey, man, if you want to do that, you know, cool, man, that's between you and the Lord. And that's not what the Bible teaches. It's not. It's just not. And if we think that way, we're thinking just like the enemy. Confused. Because dude really thinks he could be like the Most High. You want to talk about deception. Who's who's really deceived? The devil's deceived. I will be like the Most High. Are you nuts? The devil's deceived the Most High himself. Because he feels like other people need to know that he's Exactly. And that's the point. Is our society... Our society, and, you know, somebody asked me, somebody asked me if I wanted to go see that Black Panther movie because of all the racial stuff going on and trying to, you know, work with that and do those types of things. And I just heard the Lord say, don't go. And I'm like, okay, I don't, we don't go to the movies anyway, you know, but just for the sake of the community that we're engaging in stuff, I thought "Eh, it might be good to know. You know, what's going on? It's a big deal. We'll come to find out it's full of witchcraft. And it's actually feeding the African-American community witchcraft. Because there's a bunch of shaman stuff and superpower type things. And and it's all about African culture with shamanship and, you know, voodoo and that kind of stuff. Are you talking about a particular movie? That Black Panther movie? Oh. And so, and so here it's being celebrated in, here it's being celebrated in our society as this great accomplishment for the black community. And meanwhile, behind the whole thing is Hollywood pushing satanic agenda 
and making now almost a billion dollars off of the hurts and pains of the African-American community. So white Hollywood has figured out how to work the race relationship and get their witchcraft stuff out there, and everybody falling for it hook, line, and sinker, and it's supposedly a great accomplishment. How do we determine what's of the world and what's not? Well, it's pretty simple. Look at how much of the world is embracing it. What about Harry Potter? People just think, what's that? Yeah. And, and, and there's people, you know, you guys haven't been here long enough for it yet, but in June, they have a big Harry Potter fest in Kent. And, uh, you know, Sean and I and some other people went out. Did you? Yeah, you were there. Um, you know, we went out. We went out and went downtown, and there's people from churches dressed up doing Harry Potter stuff. Yes, honey. Halloween, that kind of junk. Yeah, but but the but the point is 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 it's not about condemning that person. It's about Where's the distinguishing line between light and darkness? So, just a couple more scriptures. I told you I was going to give you a lot of scriptures tonight. So I want to get back to, to that. First uh, Corinthians chapter 10. I just want to give you a couple more scriptures to meditate on. A lot of the stuff that I'm talking about tonight, this is more of a, a, a foundation of where we're going to go when we get into the book of Ephesians because you're going to need this. You're going to need this laying down as we go into what you're going to start kicking in the face as you start learning how to do a lot of the stuff we're going to talk about um, and, and grow in, in the supernatural that you've been given in Christ. So 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 20. Uh, uh, let's have it, verse 18. Consider Israel after the flesh. Are not those who eat of the sacrifices partakers of the altar? So he's talking about the temple. But I am saying then that the idol is anything or that which is offered in sacrifice to an idol is anything. But I say that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to have fellowship with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot be partakers of the Lord's table and of the table of demons. Do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? Listen to the, listen to the language. Do we, are we stronger than he? Why did he use that language? Because it's the same thing that we read in Ezekiel and Isaiah of, I'm going to make myself like the most high. He's saying, don't get, don't get caught up. Corinthians, or excuse me, Colossians chapter 2. Listen to, what he, listen to what he warns them of. Colossians chapter 2. Verse 18.
Again, this has to do with your personal walk and the decisions you make in defining what is the world and what is not. Do not let anyone cheat you of your reward by delighting in false humility and the worship of angels and dwelling on those things which he has not seen, vainly arrogant due to his unspiritual mind and not supporting the head from which the entire body, nourished and knitted together by joints and sinews, grows as God gives the increase. What's he saying? Don't let somebody come to you and go, it's not a big deal. False humility. Oh, brother, look, man, it's just, you know, hey, man, just it's all right. It's okay. You know, like, look, I think you're just being over spiritual about this or, you know, you don't have to be such a Jesus freak. You know, you don't have to be. Yeah, don't be so religious. Hey, don't get legalistic on me, brother. You know, don't put that law stuff back on me. We're under grace. And it's all this false humility. It's all this 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 jibber-jabber language, which makes no sense. Vainly arrogant due to his unspiritual mind and what? Not supporting the head. Not supporting Jesus. In other words, in everything he's saying, none of it has to do with building Christ in you. It all has to do with making excuses so they can do what they want to do. And what's it say? In the worship of angels. They don't even realize what they're doing. Don't even realize what they're saying. And Paul says the sacrifices of pagans are offered to demons. What does that mean? If your body is supposed to be, according to Romans chapter 12, a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service, then what you do with your body is either a sacrifice to the Father or a sacrifice to the other way. So when you sacrifice your time or you use your time, are you using it to build up the body of Christ and to do what God is calling you to do? Or are you sacrificing your time to something that's actually doing the opposite and not supporting the head? And we have to define these lines in our own personal life. Scripture defines them. But what I'm saying when I make that statement is you have to be diligent in finding out what this means. And you have to hear from Holy Spirit to show you how to step away whether it's for a week, a month, a year, whatever you need to do to get your eyes back in focus and your spirit back in focus so you can start seeing things the way that God sees them so that you yourself can get into a position where you're spiritually healthy, you've got the full armor of God on, you've got no access points anywhere, and you're walking forward, and there's okay. It took the disciples three and a half years with Jesus. Yeah, they got the Holy Spirit and things got crazy and you've got the Holy Spirit too and you can run well. But it still says that we have to mature. And it's my responsibility as somebody who's sharing things with you to give you the proper information. But it's your responsibility to do the right thing with the information that I'm giving you. We have an enemy. We have an adversary. And he wants you to look like him more than you look like Christ. He's not afraid that you prayed the prayer. He's not afraid that you worshiped and you lifted up your hands to God for 15, 20 minutes or half an hour a week. It does not scare him. You can come here, you can sit here, and you can listen to everything everybody's saying. doesn't scare him a bit. Not concerned because he could 
take one out. Because information without revelation is just, is just head knowledge. You have to have a revelation. You have to have the Spirit of God in you. And you have to, you have to, you have to define the enemy. You can never conquer the enemy if you don't define the enemy. Our past administration in the United States refused, refused to talk about Islamic terror, refused to talk about ISIS. Now, all those conversations are completely off to the side, and that's a whole other political conversation. I'm simply saying we didn't identify the enemy, and the enemy grew over eight years. Now, wherever you stand with that, that's between you and God. All I'm saying is we need to identify the problem. You go to the doctor to identify the problem. You have to identify the problem so that you can deal with it. We are not unaware of his devices. Do not let him get a foothold. Do not, let, do not go to bed angry. Sin not. I mean... There's so much instruction. There's so much encouragement and instruction in your Bible that you have that people are dying all over the world to have in their hands. People are going to jail for having one page and one paragraph. You've got the whole thing. We've got multitudes of them everywhere. We have to read and know and understand and pray and beg and fast and come to a revelation and a realization of the war that we're in so that we wake up with our armor on and stop saying, I'm going to put on the full armor of God. You were never told to take it off. We keep teaching people, we need to put on the full armor of God. You were never supposed to take it off. Get it on, leave it on. Nobody told you to put the sword down. You chose to put it down. The sword is the word of God. Nobody told you to take off the breastplate of righteousness. But when you go walk in sin, you're not walking with the breastplate of righteousness on. I mean, it just makes sense to me. It just, it's real simple, real easy. So anyhow, I went rather long, but I really need, needed to get all that out. Um, Make sense? You've never read those? No. You mean like... Just the ones like, in the New Testament. Like, you mean Ezekiel or yeah. Isaiah? Oh, okay. Yeah, we, we just... Um, we're not taught. And when we are taught, we're not really taught well. You know... Um, not that I've got it all figured out or, or, you know, I never I know every single verse or whatever the case may be either. But at the same time, like, we have to know. You've got to define your own personal enemies. You've got to find out where does he try to get you to idolize something? Where does he try to get you to soak up your time? Where does he try to get you to get away from the Bible? What What is keeping you away from God's word? What is keeping you away from keeping the armor of God completely fully armed? What is keeping you from the fruit of the Spirit? 
These are your enemies. Where are you spending your money? These things can be your enemies. I mean, these, these are your enemies. These are keeping you from walking in the kingdom of God. Righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Missing righteousness, missing peace, missing joy. We have a problem. Where's the door? Shut that thing. Lock it. Weld it. Latch it. Barrigate it. Brick it. Whatever you need to do. Just be done with it. Define your enemies. Start taking ground. Be fruitful, multiply, subdue the earth. Make sense? Okay, let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for helping us to see clearly and understand our enemy. God, not that we want to glorify him in any way, shape, or form, You see him as defeated. He has been completely destroyed by the blood of Christ. But we know that he still operates in this world and you still call him the prince of this world until you return. Jesus, we thank you that you've made us more than conquerors. We thank you that because you and Holy Spirit are inside of us, then it's greater than anything that's in this world. And we thank you for the victory. We thank you for wholeness. We thank you for righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. And Holy Spirit, we thank you so much for giving us all the fruit of the Spirit, for giving us peace even now and joy and contentment, self-control, faithfulness and gentleness, patience, kindness and meekness, and love. We thank you, Father, for giving us a divine mission. We thank you for our marching orders. We thank you, Lord, that you've made us supreme and, dare I say, superior beings on this earth than the fallen ones who lost perfection. And though once, Father, we were still lost as well, you've raised us with Christ. You've raised us with Jesus. You've seated us in heavenly places. You see us restored. You see us as sons and daughters in the kingdom. Father, we ask you to manifest your kingdom everywhere we go. We ask you to finish the work that you've started in us. For it is your will to do and to complete it. We thank you for perfection. Jesus, you said, be therefore perfect, even as our Father is perfect. So, Father, we thank you for perfection. Thank you for righteousness. Father, I thank you for everyone in this room and I ask you, Lord, even so now to release a supernatural grace to embrace everything spoken tonight in truth. That shifts would happen in minds and in hearts, God. We thank you for dreams, supernatural dreams and visions to guide us and direct us, to show us the right path. We thank you for giving us your word which is a light to our path and a lamp to our feet. We thank you that all your promises are yes and amen. We thank you for keeping us in perfect peace as our mind, our state, on you. We ask you to fix our hearts like flint to your ways and your kingdom. 
And Father, you are most high. There is none greater. And it is an honor to represent you well in this world. It is an honor to be just like you in this world. And we long for the day when we can cast our crowns before you and say, you are worthy face to face. And behold the Lamb, slain from the foundation of the world, seated on the throne, high and lifted up. Father, we thank you. We thank you for tonight. In Jesus' name. Thank you for tuning into the broadcast today. Hey, I wanted to just connect with you, share with you some other ways that you can be encouraged in your faith in Christ Jesus through Fruit of the Vine Ministries. You can visit our website at fruitofthevinemistries.wix.com forward slash fruit of the vine. We have our statement of faith on there. There's a lot of encouraging books, literature, things that you can get your hands on. There's, there's some good meat in there for you to be continually encouraged in. You can also contact us by sending us an email through Fruit of the Vine Ministries at gmail.com, right here in the form on the website. Also, you can connect with us on Facebook at Fruit of the Vine Ministries Ohio. So if you go on Facebook, it's Fruit of the Vine Ministries Ohio. You'll find the Fruit of the Vine Ministries logo. And from there, just like the page and you'll get encouraging scriptures. You'll get encouraging memes, things that you can share with your friends to say, hey, listen, I follow Yeshua Jesus. I want to give you another opportunity that some people take to take advantage of our P.O. box. You can write us a letter. You can let us know how you've been encouraged and strengthened in your face. And if you feel led by the Holy Spirit, you can also send a check and you can help us and support financially what Father is doing here. It's P.O. Box 222 Louisville, Ohio, 44641. And you can make that out to John Davison. There's also a link to, to give on our uh, website as well. Another way that you can listen and tune in is through our radio broadcasts. Every Sunday morning on local Christian radio at 10.30 a.m. on 90.1 WJEE and 90.9 WJDD Faith Ministry Radio. And you can connect with us each week there and listen to new encouraging messages. And then also our podcasts are available as well through podbean.com. Go to Fruit of the Vine Ministries on podbead.com. Just click the subscribe and follow, and you can follow some of the latest podcasts. Sometimes they're long, sometimes they're short, sometimes they're just very short, encouraging messages. And I just wanted to give you an outlet so that you can, hey, listen, if God moves on you and you want more, if you want more of Jesus, we want to give you every ounce of grace that God has given to us. Jesus said, freely you have received, freely given. We want to encourage the church to walk in power, strength, Holiness, righteousness, completely covered by the blood of Jesus Christ, walking as normal Christians in the supernatural and seeing friends, neighbors, loved ones, co-workers coming to faith, salvation knowledge in Yeshua HaMashiach. So thank you very much for spending your time with us today. And God bless you in Jesus' mighty name. Shalom.